Mental workers, you're listening to the Mental Work Podcast, your companion to early career psychology. I'm your host, Brenwyn Milkins. Today, listeners, we have a fantastic listener story. Listener stories are where we talk about how a person came to be registered, what they've picked up along the way, what they've learned that would be helpful to you, the trials, the tribulations, the successes and joys. And here to help us out is our guest, Nick. Hi, Bron. How are you going? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And Nick, could you just tell the listeners who you are? And I'm doing this new thing, which I just told Nick about, and I put him on the spot for it. But I was like, and could you tell us your non-psychology passion as well? So who are you and your non-psychology passion? Okay, thanks, Ron. And first of all, thanks for having me because uh, I listen to your podcast all the time. And I, you know, I was telling you before, I've learned so much as an early career psychologist. So thank you to you and everyone that's been on it. Who am I? I work currently as an executive director of human resources and also as a clinical psychology registrar. And a little bit about me, it's been probably a later career journey in terms of entering the field of psychology. And Compared to maybe people who come through a traditional pathway, I think my story has probably been more about uh, how I've come in at a later point in my life um, and what I've learned through that process. What I do outside of psychology, well, it's a good question, but probably only since I finished my clinical master's do I feel like I have a life outside of psychology. Uh, yeah, that's quite yeah. normal, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I repeat, everyone <laughs> feels that, that's listening. But I'm learning now that, that it's important to have a life out of psychology. So I do uh, actively do fitness. I'm a fanatic of Barry's Bootcamp. I do Barry's Bootcamp three to four times a week uh, with my partner, uh, and also like to do yoga as well. And sometimes that's fallen off in terms of that, but self-care is something that I'm really practicing at the moment. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So is that like 6am circuit stuff or weightlifting? Yeah, yeah. Kind of like sprinting on a treadmill, being oh, yelled at, and then jumping down onto the floor and it's a 5.45am class. So I'm one of those up at 5am people uh, and get started in a day. Yeah, but it is something that I really enjoy. My face is uh, like disgust-faced right now, but I'm very impressed and respectful of you. Yeah, yeah. It's not always easy, but yeah, my face is a look the best on those mornings. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing with us. I appreciate it. And maybe we'll start there then because one thing that sticks out for me is I hear, okay, we've got an executive director of HR. To me, when I think of clinical psychology, that's like opposite worlds. So. I'm interested to know what prompted you to be like, okay, I'm going to go back to being a student, like after being in a career and I'm going to study ClinSych. Yep. Look, I think um, that's not how it, in terms of my initial starting point of entering psychology from a study through to uh, being registered, I probably started with an idea. And I ended where I ended up today because I probably fell in love with the whole field. But if I take it all the way back, uh, I worked in HR or have been working in HR for a good 20 years and I'm not giving away my age. Um, I started <laughs> when I was 10, um, <laughs> working in HR for a little while. And actually in my undergrad, when I was straight out of university, I started studying behavioral science in my first year and I hated statistics. Like absolutely was like, I'm not doing this. This is not what I signed up for. So I transferred into business, which I don't know how that was any different. But I feel when... like business also <laughs> has numbers. <laughs> Economics, yeah. you know, everything. Um, but I think at that time, I became quite overwhelmed very quickly in that first year of psychology of what is this from, you know, the statistical needs. And back then it was all manual. I say back then like I'm that old, but it was manual calculations, SPSS was a new thing, and it was very different. So I gave up back then, and I say gave up, I just tried something different. If I take it really back to where I started and then realized statistics wasn't for me, went into business, I did my business, went into human resources, but I always had this thing through my career that I really would love to go back into psychology, but when, how, who's got time for that? So my career progressed pretty quickly worked overseas, worked internationally in HR. 
And then about eight years ago, New Year's Eve, I made a resolution like we all do. And I said, I'm actually going to go back and I'm going to do psychology and do the three-year sequence, which some people take a bachelor's, but I only had to do the graduate diploma for a three-year sequence. And I did that as a hobby, finished that, fell in love with it, met some amazing people, and then was invited to do my honours. And then I thought, oh, I've never done honours before. I wonder what that would be like. And I think that's where you start going, oh, this is actually becoming quite interesting now. Yeah. So did my honours when I was working full-time. And I should mention, I was working full-time while doing the grad deep, but then when I did my honours. And I was lucky enough to be working, doing my honours and my grad deep in universities, which are flexible. So I did my, those at um, UNE, which I think for me was amazing because they were flexible and got to be able to do residentials. And then after 2020, when COVID hit, I had the opportunity and some people were saying, go down the NPP pathway, the Master of Professional Psychology. The four plus two was phasing out. Or some people were saying, go down the clinical masters. And I really wasn't sure. So long story short, um, I was still working full-time in my executive director role and then decided to put an application in for clinical masters. And I, it sounds very crazy when I say it out loud, I was working full-time while doing the clinical masters for the first couple of years. Yeah, I was like, I like, I'm going to stop you in a second, ask you about that. But well, actually, you I'll just stop you now. High achiever, <laughs> high standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I'm just wondering, like, are you two people? Like, have you got like a twin or something who's living the dual life? H- how is this possible just time management wise, but also like you learn so much like in these courses, like. How did, how did you manage that? Well, look, I didn't um, because I think that what happened was when I got into the clinical masters in my first year, I was, when I started that program, I did the coursework components. So to, to really, in terms of immersing myself, I, I did it part-time and focused on coursework and COVID hit. So when I was in my head thinking, hey, I'll transition out of my corporate job and into psychology, the world changed and Let's be honest, everyone was staying home. So what else yeah. was there to do? So I think it worked initially, but I think the clinical program, all, all the master's programs, they're, they're demanding um, MPP, MCP, yeah. whatever path you take. And I made a commitment, let's just see what happens there with maybe longer term when the placements all started that I would transition out, which is what I did. So at the start of this year, I actually stopped the whole part-time went full-time in my placements, but it was demanding. And look, your question's a good one. Do we sometimes overcommit? If you're going to do one thing, we do it properly. I started at some point, I was trying to do too many things. And I learned that sometimes you just got to say, I'm going to do this right now because it feels like that's where I need to be. But I had to figure out how, because at a later stage in life, when you have mortgages and families and all that stuff, you can't just say, well, I'm not going to work. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, it's quite a luxury when you think about it to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to stop working and then I will study f- full time. So even if that was a desire of yours, it like practically just financially, it, it would be very difficult for most people. Absolutely. And I think one of the key things I find, and as I've met people through psychology is that when you decide, whatever, if it's psychology, whatever it is, when you decide at a different stage in your life to do a career change, because that's in effect what I was doing, your identity changes. And suddenly I was working in a corporate job at an executive level, dealing with, you know, the kind of the peak of my career. Yeah. And then suddenly, on the other hand, sitting there, and I feel like I'm doing clinical work at the moment, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sitting there and, you know, basically saying, but I really want to be doing this and this is what I feel my purpose is and that's what my values are telling me to do. But how do I do that? Because I still need to support myself. And I think it's a real big challenge in our whole profession. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. So that's one thing I'm wondering about because like you say, you you have been at the peak of your career, like it's a leadership role and position, which sounds like it has a lot of responsibility. So I'm curious about what was your purpose or or drive to pursue a, a clinical psychology pathway? Like what was drawing you to this? Yeah, it's and 
I think when I started thinking about it, people kept on saying to me, why are you going down the organizational psychology pathway? Yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> Most people do and they say, yeah, yeah. you're working in corporate, you're, you know, and there's well, obviously it would make more sense. But I think for me, um, I've always had a strong interest in mental health. The scientist practitioner model for me is so fascinating I love data and I love working one-on-one with individuals. And that's both from a, whether it was around um, their mental health, whether it was around life transitions, whether it was around career transition, I felt quite privileged to be able to sit with people through that space. So to me, naturally, I went into that clinical setting and I was fascinated around human behavior, but also when people sometimes are at that period of distress in their life, you have this ability to help them. And that for me was just driving a need. The second part I'll say is when I initially went into going down the clinical pathway, I had two goals and I lost sight of these, but they're coming back. Yeah. Um, and my two goals were one, I wanted to support the LGBTQI plus community. So I was very clear, like that is what I'm doing. I'm a proud and out gay man. And I thought, how can I go do more? So I thought that was one thing I wanted to support with a lived experience, but also, you know, be a, um, support the community in a different way. And the second part is I have a strong interest in men's mental health and help seeking behaviors. So for me, I thought, how can I like live my passion and my purpose and use science and use human behavior? And it all just came together and it just felt right. Mm, yeah, and I think that's what that was a, a gap I was I was thinking of for you because when I think of HR, like I'm not a HR expert, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in that role you would help others. Like they would come to you with dicey issues that they're facing and difficulties in the workplace, and perhaps you'd be providing leadership and oversight. So I feel like you would be helping people in that role, which might fulfill a bit of like desire if you wanted to help people. But then when I heard you say like your passion for the LGBTIQI plus community, it's like, oh, yes, that's a very underserviced area and men's mental health as well. Very underserviced, much needed um, that we need people in those areas. So was that like really, well, I guess when times got tough, like that was the thing that was keeping you through? Yeah, I think. And also the study, I really love learning. So yeah. when, and I think most psychologists or people going through, it's not even psychologists, anyone studying psychology, because you don't necessarily need to be registered. You can study it or be yeah, in, in, in academia. I just love the learning process of it. And that kept me through. And the people, I just kept on meeting. Psychologists are very interesting people to meet because <laughs> we all share these common purpose. But I think most of us at the end of the day, come from that same point of we want to make a difference and whether that's mm. around policy whether that's around working with people individuals we always come from that point of view how do we make a difference on your point around hr um, and that's an interesting point in itself because i felt before i came registered that i had to give up hr i was feeling like oh i now have to go become a clinical psychologist or whatever it is registered and that's my purpose and what I didn't realize was that it's actually not. And this, this profession, you meet people who are doing health policy. So to your point, I've reframed my thinking because at the moment, I'm a clinical psych registrar and part of my registrar program, and people are surprised at this, I do two things. One is I work in private practice and I'm currently working in your traditional clinical setting, working with the community and the populations I just spoke about and more broadly, and the second part is I work in corporate, but I'm running mental health programs. I'm looking at psychosocial hazards. I'm looking at harm prevention around psychological injuries in the workplace from a clinical perspective. And I never realized until I became registered thinking it's not that black or white when it comes or linear. You can be actually a clinical psychologist in many different roles, not just in that private practice, traditional setting or health setting. Yeah. Is that something you didn't think that you could do, like work in both corporate and private practice? Or were there people saying to you, like, nah, there's no way you could do that? I think a bit of both. I think I had, like many people, when you go through the programs, 
it feels like you either do your traditional academic setting, going through a PhD pathway, you do kind of the lecturing and the research and that component, or you do org or you do clinical. It didn't feel to me at that time, like you could become a clinical psychologist and still work in that organizational setting. Like you have to go do organizational psychology. And what I realized that it's really important when you're going through the program, you really have to look at the competencies and as you become registered and whether people go down that endorsement pathway of looking at the endorsements, um, whether it's clinical or the competencies of what are important, it's not the titles of a position. And I learned that and was more open to saying, actually, it talks about, as an example, cultural diversity is one of the competencies that you have to achieve, both from um, uh, provisional right through to clinical that means so many different things in so many different contexts. And I think we have to think like that. Otherwise, what I think may happen is people think I must be a clinical in a health setting in a private practice room. I don't think it's that linear, that, that black and white. I agree. I think a lot of people do think, say, just the cultural competency. It's like, yeah, I need to learn cultural competency in this specific way. But we don't consider the different contexts that that competency can be used in the different ways that it can be used. A hundred percent. And I also think, I believe this could be controversial, but I'll say it anyway. I love controversy. I know, I know. I'm like, you're lovely. You're like, what's he going to say now? It probably yes. is controversial, but you don't. I'm like so it. excited. <laughs> I believe that if the profession really thinks about the clinical setting, and I don't, I'm not talking about endorsement, clinical psychology, we should have more psychologists in the workplace doing mm. the clinical application across a corporate setting. And we're seeing that, by the way. There's a massive movement at the moment where we've got psychologists being invited into the workplace, and that's general psychologists being asked to look at the workplaces and make decisions around how do we help individuals, harm prevention, that's not necessarily organizational psychology. I think that's actually more generalist psychology. So I think there should be a movement around introducing more psychs using their kind of like clinical application within workplace settings. And I think we'll see more and more of that in the future. I think we will too. Um, I do feel like it's it's already happening. There are so many consultants to like large organizations. Like I'm just thinking the mining sector here in WA where I am, but I know like Rio Tinto and Chevron, they have massive wellbeing programs and it's in their best interest to make sure that their workforce has really high wellbeing. And psychologists are really well suited to being able to look at the research literature and be like, here's how we can foster that. And so I reckon it will become bigger in the future as well. Particularly, I think there was an updated, I'm going to say thing because I don't know what it is. So you probably know more than me. But I know there was this thing a few months ago and it was like workplaces have to look out more for psychosocial hazards in the workplace. And I feel like it was legislated like in New South Wales or something. Is this ringing a bell? Oh, I love that. I love that you raised this. Um, you're okay. my, fa my favorite topic at the moment. No, you're absolutely right. So the code of practice around psychosocial hazards okay, was great. implemented in one of the states as a code of practice. Yeah. Um, and I really encourage all the listeners, if you really want to develop, see, see what's going on for organizations. And I just think it's good for us as clinicians, when we have a client sitting in front of us and they're talking about what they're experiencing in the workplace, you have significant responsibilities on employers to ensure that they're removing psychosocial hazards. And what that looks like is identifying them. And there are uh, approximately eight to 10, I can't remember exactly the exact number, but they're the things like workload, exclusion, um, bullying. Now, what that means is that we can rely on our research as psychologists, providing support services to employees to ensure that we remove that harm. And I think that movement is moving more towards, it's not well-being programs, it's more systemic issues. And I think we think like that. That's how psychologists think. We look at, let's put our scientist practitioner, let's identify the factors and let's work on how we can help. 
um, and creative interventions. And I really believe that's what about competitive advantage. And you're right, there are a lot of consultants at the moment um, selling yeah. that work. No, I was kind of smiling just then because when you were naming the psychosocial hazards, it is crazy how often I have heard over the past two years of being a psychologist um, how problematic hot desking is a lot for like, <laughs> and I was like, is that a unique psychosocial hazard? Because it's just like, I've developed this like by proxy hatred of uh, hot desking, like through the impact that it's had on many people I've met. But it's it like when you said like systematic, I'm like, yeah, because it's not like accounting for people's sense of like consistency and psychological safety and predictability and it's making things difficult. Acting's like, if you look at the individual needs, so if I'm an individual that requires my setup in a particular way, because as an example, I, and this is a really good example, I read really fast and it's just, I read really fast Yeah, and I've put systems and things in place in, in my actual computer setup to slow me down. So I don't respond in a particular way. But if you set up your workstation like that, or your practices, these are things that are important to people. Um, and support them in their everyday work. But I think these are the things where we can we can really help um, and we can look at individual needs as well. And I think adding to that is, um, as we all know, post-COVID, the world did change a lot and people became, and this is probably if I put it my executive director HR hat on, people, what was good was people started to talk more about their mental health. And we know that, and we know that in terms of the demand for mental health services, but what it also meant was employers were suddenly saying, Hey, what does that mean for us? Like, what do we do now? Is it just traditional EAP? What do I do when a person comes and says, actually, I've just been diagnosed with X and we have that, you know, whether it's ADHD in the workplace, what do I have to do? Do I have to actually change everything in the workplace? And I think what's been great is people are more comfortable now to talk about these topics in the workplace, but we equally need to help employers know how to support people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really common thing. It's, and I hear that a lot around Are You OK Day and just some other campaigns as well. It's like, we're encouraging people to talk more than ever, but then we don't want to let them down when they go reach out for professional help and the services aren't available. And I think likewise in the workplace, we don't want to encourage people to speak up and then just do nothing and be unresponsive. And so I agree with your point that I think psychologists could be really instrumental in helping workplaces respond. Yeah. And you can see now why when we're having this conversation, it's interesting through my career, you know, I, my thinking was I'm going to be a psychologist in a private practice room and that's all I'm going to do. And then my frame of thinking has changed now. I love, by the way, I love doing private practice and I love doing my one-on-one and I can't do that in a corporate setting because obviously I, you know, there's dual roles and I'm not going to do that from an ethical point of view. So my work in the workplace, my psychology is more so based on organizational programs around mental health policy services for employees. In my private practice, I get rewarded with that whole like one-on-one work, actually doing intervention work directly with my clients. I feel very fortunate and privileged to be able to do both. Yeah. One thing I'm interested in is like, I do think this is a unique, well, at least uncommon uh, combination. and. I think a lot of people are, especially early career psychologists, they just don't really know the scope of what they can do and it's difficult for them to see career options. And I'm just curious, like, do you feel throughout your training that you were made aware of like the different ways that psychologists can use their skills in different settings or is this something you had to discover for yourself? What was really interesting was when I finished my my sixth, like when I went through the clinical program and I was doing my placements, I had three amazing placements. I did, um, can I mention them? Yeah, you can. So my first place that was at Headspace and I had amazing supervision um, and I won't call up my supervisor, but she was absolutely amazing and just taught me so much. And my second placement was at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. And I had, I had two supervisors. I had two amazing supervisors who were there every day. And I just had an amazing experience in that environment. And then my last one was at Long Bay Prison. 
Um, so I just had this amazing opportunity and my supervisor then was amazing. And wow, once, quite different settings, right? Yeah, really different settings and yeah. challenging in so many different ways. Yeah. But the common thread through that was I think they were saying to me, you know, just wait and see how you feel at the end of the program. Don't put this pressure on yourself that you must come out and do X. And then when I was finishing the program, I started networking and looking for opportunities about what I would do. And I was really fascinating because some people would not engage with me in dialogue around working in a private practice setting because they were like, no, you need to do four days. No, you need to do this. And I get it. I fundamentally get that there is a commercial obligation that an organization has to me in terms of having people join. But it made me feel like I had to give up everything, all my HR work, because I had to commit to four days of psychology and that's it. And I probably was like, no, that's not how I see the world. I believe in flexibility. I believe in autonomy. I believe in agency in what I do. And I think we should all be a little bit more vocal about what's important to us. And secondly, I was also being treated like I, all my experience of 20 years didn't count. But how will you do that? How will you even meet the, uh, the registrar competency? So personally, I thought some people were very rigid in their thinking in terms of how I could structure a, a post-registration career. And I was very fortunate to meet um, my current prior supervisor who, um, you know, is probably going to listen to this. I'm not saying that because they'll be listening to this. So this is not about Rowdy Boys. Another person that I spoke to a lot for advice was... David Deemer in Melbourne, actually, who's um, just, I think, one psychologist of the year. Uh, and I got to speaking to them and they were challenging me. They were like, why are you thinking like that? You know, this is not, you can do what you want. And the current clinic I work in said, no, you know what? Come here, just try it and see how you feel. We'll get your clients, we'll get you your male clients, we'll get you your community clients that you want to focus on. And I'm like, really? Can I do that? And I'm like, what do you reckon about me doing some HR? They're like, try it. Let's see how this works. And look, it's not easy all the time. I'm not going to lie because you have to be organized. You have to balance. I have CPD requirements that I have to meet. I have supervision requirements I have to meet. But I love the fact that I'm doing it the way that's right for me. I'm meeting my obligations under APRA's requirements in terms of going through the whole program requirements. I'm meeting my ethical obligation. Um, I'm doing everything that I'm required to do, but we work in a profession where we are able to define our own pathway forward. And I really encourage anyone, whether they're, you know, start of their careers um, or, or like me, more mature, but an early career psychologist to really sit down and go, what's important to me before you get pulled into, it's got to be done this way. And that also applies to the way that we also contract psychologists because as an executive director of HR with 20 years experience in commercial contracts, I would also say we need to protect ourselves and it is not acceptable that we still have employers out there with contracts which are not deemed acceptable for early career psychologists who have no access to know what's right or wrong in that. So yeah, I'm pretty firm on that. So I also have an obligation to share that with listeners around no, signing up absolutely. the contract. And interestingly, that's I've I've interviewed a few people about their listener stories and what you're saying about really sitting down and thinking about what's important to you is something that a few other guests have brought up as very important. Um because some people have heard like, you know, they've stopped when, for example, the person was like, you have to work four days a week in private practice. They've been like, oh, okay, I guess I have to do that. And then they do do that. And they sacrifice what's important to them and they end up very unhappy. Whereas what we've, I've heard from guests is that if you shop around and find a workplace that you feel fits with your values and your way that you wish to work, then that usually results in better outcomes for you, for your clients, and you just feel better about your work. I'm, I'm feeling like a choice point acting happening there. Yeah. Um, and and I, you're absolutely right because that's actually yeah. what I had to do. So yeah. I absolutely felt I was, you know, and, and if we use that terminology and I'm using this, I actually did go through this. I went through moments where I was saying, am I really, you know, moving towards my values and what's important? And, and for some people, financial security is important. Let's not forget we are all living in a world where there is increased financial pressure, 
So to say, I'm a psychologist and let's not talk about money. No, it's not okay. Like we sacrifice a lot. We pay a lot of money to go through education. We need security. And I can't remember, Bron, but you've had a couple, I can't remember which podcast. I love talking about money. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but but there was one where you spoke about, I can't remember the, the one, but she spoke about like, creating more financial security within oh, yeah, our, yeah. yeah, I can't remember which one it's it was. It's probably Hayley, actually. Maybe yeah. it's Hayley, but I remember listening and going, you are absolutely okay and we yeah. should talk about it. And in my network of psychologists, people will reach out to me and say, hey, can I speak to you about this contract I'm going to sign, how yeah. I should do this? Look, for me, what was more important was the, the clinical director, their purpose, what they're trying to do. Um, and also flexibility. So I had high flexibility, CPD, and perfectionist standards that I need to still to drop. Yes. Yeah, no, and I think it's interesting you coming from a, a background where you know contract law very well, it, it sounds like, yes, because that's one of the key things we talk about on this podcast as well. I've had a lot of episodes about contracting and sham contracting because it's not something as early career psychologists that we generally know about. We don't know what's a fair contract. We don't know what fair terms are. And certainly I've had my own contracts where I've been like, it'll be okay. I have no need to like try and consult with anybody else. I'm sure it's okay. And it hasn't been okay. I do wonder whether, I guess, coming to psychology later in your career, whether, I guess you have nothing to compare it to, but did it come with a certain level of confidence that like, you know, I can take my time here. I can find a workplace that suits me. I can negotiate with my contract. Yeah, and it's very easy for me to sit here because I had experience. So I was bringing work experience to the table. But equally, I will say what I found hard was I had conversations where people were dismissing my work experience and I, that did not feel great. So I would sit in a room and some people would say, yeah, you've been doing HR for 20 years. you know." And let's break that down, what that means. you know, That's 20 years of looking at engagement, doing organizational work, 2,000 employees, managing risk in the workplace. But I was being told all of a sudden, yeah, but, you know, that really doesn't count. You're starting at the start. Now, I am nowhere near where I need to be or where I want to be in terms of the basics of case formulation, you know, intervention. I still have the moments where I'm like, oh, my God, what do I even do here? Like, this is freaking me out. And I feel completely imposter syndrome every single day sometimes when I'm in the actual therapy room. But I think there are other things that I bring into the profession, which I sort of thought, oh, can't you see that? And they were being dismissed. Mm, Yeah, I I think think, that that sounds like it would feel pretty crummy to have that dismissed. Yeah, and I think I started to feel like, oh, well, that doesn't matter anymore. Like, better start from the start. So I think people do bring a lot of experience, lived experience, life experience, work experience, and there's no traditional pathway to this profession. And I do believe we need to be thinking that the world's changed and people will come from different backgrounds, but we should really look at that. As we do with our clients, we try and understand our clients, their strengths and how they work with those strengths and help them through that. So I just said, I feel very privileged to have, you know, working at the moment with supervision and in a clinic where I love, you know, I feel completely like imposter syndrome every day. I absolutely do. And I still have my moments of what am I doing? But I also am challenged a lot where they remind me, actually, you're okay with this. Like chill with that. Let's focus on this. And and I think that's a really important learning for me. Totally. And yeah, imposter syndrome is so common when we're, yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's the top thing (laughs) for early career psychologists. I do wonder though, like being a male identifying person, plus being part of the LGBT community, plus having your background in HR, like, do you feel working with your clients that you do bring life experiences and that does help your clinical practice? Yes, I do. I think when you're in that clinical setting, when I'm with my clients, uh, I definitely do bring that. I will always disclose that I'm openly a gay man and I don't have an issue doing that. Um, it's something that I'm very comfortable with. It's interesting though, one thing that I do think I always consider is my own biases and what comes up for me in some sessions. And it's one thing I'm always mindful of. I think when I started dealing with like when I went up, I can't, I can't reveal that. I can't disclose that about myself. 
And learning boundaries, I think, has been very important for me. And there are some things I won't. There are some things that I just, for example, sometimes when I'm in a clinical setting, people Google you. This is what freaked me out when I went into uh, private practice. People like search you online or like, particularly the younger when I was at Headspace. Yeah. And they would disclose to you, oh, I see so-and-so, you know, and you could very easily see through various, whether it's LinkedIn or whatever, what people do. I found that quite challenging where they would confront you with your personal history and you think, oh God, do I need to go change everything online? Yeah. I think I always then think about what profile do I have online? What may clients find out about me and what am I willing to discuss? Um, And I'll always say, oh, like, yeah, absolutely. That's online. So I have no issue hiding that. And it's just things like what I do for work. But I think you also learn boundaries of what I will and will not disclose. Yeah, totally. And that's, yeah, part of, I guess, having a, having a framework in your own mind about self-disclosure and being like, what is the purpose of this? Like, is it helpful clinically? Yeah. Why am I doing this? I guess. I love being able to be in a room with people where I can, I have that lived experience as well. I think what I've learned though, as well is I think it's really helps. I do think that life experience helps in this profession. I genuinely believe that. And I'm not talking about life experience from an age perspective, any life experience helps. Yeah. I always bring it back down to, but let's be formulative about this. What am I trying to do here with this client? And how am I really helping them from a clinical point of view? I always go back to that. And I have very strict supervisors who remind me of that every single day. Yeah, no, it's such a process to work it out because I guess one thing I worked out quite early on when I was starting out as a psychologist was like, let's say you have a client in front of you who never gets to take up space in their relationships or in their families. And then I'm coming in here as a psychologist and even something innocuous like, I did some painting on the weekend. Maybe that might be threatening to them and taking up too much space when they see this as this needs to be their space entirely. So it's, it's, yeah, it's something to consider. Do you know what I find really interesting as you were just saying that I was thinking out, um, one of the, what, what came up to me as you were talking then was one of the biggest learnings is when you're looking, working across different things. So for example, you work in a corporate setting. In a corporate setting, we're very goal-focused, outcome-focused. But when you're in that clinical setting with a client, yes, we set goals, but we go at the pace of the client and we meet the client where they're at. And early on, when I started working with clients, what was coming up for me was this need to deliver, this need to get an outcome. And I think for me, what I realized was, you know, if you are working in multiple spaces, whether that's policy, whether that's corporate, whether that's whatever it is, be really mindful of how do you operate in the context of what you do? And how does that play into the other roles? And I really compartmentalize now. When I walk into the clinic, I remind myself why I'm there. I disconnect from everything. I will not bring any technology into the room. Wow. That room is my client. And I will not, and I, my persona changes, not because my identity is different, because I need to remember why I'm there. And then when I'm in that corporate setting, I know. People are very clear. I'm not here to do any clinical one-on-one work. I have very strict boundaries. The first day when people meet me and they find out, oh, you're a psychologist, you know, I will talk to you about my problems. And I'm very clear. That is not my role here. That is not in my position description. And I think that's really important to think like, particularly if you're doing multiple different roles. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's something I hadn't even considered, but I I imagine, yeah, that's quite tough, like being quite goal-oriented. But if you brought that goal orientation into clinical work, it would be quite stressful for a client. It'd be like, have I fixed you yet? Like, are we done? Where are we going? Goal Where are achieved. we going? Yeah. <laughs> They'd be like, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still, yeah. we're still formulating here. Like, well, you know. Uh, yeah, totally. And, that's, and, I, and I think that's really important. And, and we, we're taught like that, right? We, we go through yeah. the training and we're like, What's the goal? What what are you helping them with? I think private practice, and I don't know if you found this as well, but private practice is hard as well, I find, because you know that potentially if they're coming with a uh, mental health treatment plan, you know that they have case sessions that are rebated. And I always think they're paying money here. And, you know, I have to consider that. And how do I get an outcome for this client in this you know, with that time that I've got with them, knowing that for some people, it's a financial burden. You know, some people do not have the privilege to be able to actually pay that money. 
I struggle with that still. I still do today. I, I really, it, 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 it weighs on me and I bring this up in supervision line and I always say, you know, I'm always thinking about, oh, it's 50 minutes. I want to give more time to them. I want oh, to do another absolutely. It, it weighs heavily on me also. It's, it's literally found its way into my opening spiel that I do in my first session. And I say something like, I recognize that you spent, you will be spending time, energy and money coming here. And I want to make sure that we work in sessions um, so that you get the most out of it. And I certainly don't want to place pressure on you, but I want to develop a culture of feedback where we can say what's working and what isn't, that kind of thing, so that we can get, you know, what's best for you. And I want to be on your team for that. So yeah, it's like, a, thank you. Yeah, I've workshopped that over a while because it's like, yeah, it was weighing heavily on me. And I was like, I just want to acknowledge that I know that you are spending money coming to see me and I want to make sure that we, we help you or get you to where you want to go. Like not in the fastest way possible that you feel so rushed, but in a way that recognizes where you're at, but makes use of our time. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we, the client has, the, the kind of choice in this as well, right? The therapeutic yeah. relationship is critical and all of that. Totally. And I've also... I think once you frame something like that and they're aware of that, I think it's a very different starting point. Um, mm. But so when you were talking, one of the other things I think, which was really interesting when I was looking at moving into a role around doing the psychology component, clinical work, everyone kept on saying to me, don't do private practice. You can't do private oh. practice as your, you know, first regist- post-registration oh, job. Oh, I see. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm like everyone, everyone I would meet would say, don't do private practice, don't do private practice. It's not, it's, you know, go do something else. Do you know and why was, they were saying that? Like what was? I still try to work it out. Maybe I'm, okay, sure. in, in, <laughs> maybe I'm completely naive here and, you know, I haven't worked it out yet. But I get why. They were saying that it's too isolating. You don't have enough support around you. you you're working on the hour. You obviously don't have that kind of security of a multidisciplinary team at times. No, I can see why people say yeah, that. Yeah, okay. But I don't agree mm. because I think there are some private practice settings which are set up in a better way than some public health settings. And there are some private practice settings which are doing amazing programs for provisionals, for um, post-registration, for endorsements, whatever, with amazing CPD, which is ridiculous, like literally every week. Where I work, it's like I can't even – like. It's like, take your pick of what CPD mm. you want to do. And I, I think this goes back to, I don't think it's about don't do private practice. It's about when you're signing up for that first job, who is my supervisor? How many times will I meet with them? Can I call them if I'm having a crisis moment? Who are my rest of my team? What CPD is available? Because in some public health settings, it may be that you get lots of CPD, lots of online amazing resources, and in some you get one conference a year and that's it. So I think you can't think, don't do private practice, don't do you know, public health. I think it's look at the role, understand what you're going to get, and think about where you want to go. And for me, I was told don't specialize, don't specialize, but I'm clear. I want to work in mental health. I want to work with the community in a more broader way. And that's why I signed up for this. And it's okay to be very clear on that's why I'm doing it because I'm passionate about this. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Thanks so much for sharing that with us because I think if people do it like black and white and they're like, oh, no, private practice is isolating without looking at the specific workplace, then they may, I guess, not turn down a workplace that would provide them with lots of support and, and lots of CPD. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mm, no, very important. So, Nick, I, I was hoping to do a bit of a 360, but something we were talking about was the importance of networking. And I just wondered if you could speak to that a bit more. Yeah, when I was going through my placements, um, and actually when I was sort of starting to look at placement opportunities or looking at future opportunities, a lot of people would say to me, how did you get, because I got, a, just if I start back, yeah. My clinical masters I did at Charles Sturt, which was the flexible program where you get to choose your own placements and you have to find your own placements. Ah. Oh. And they can be paid or they can be unpaid. So there's pros and cons. Yeah. And many students found it really challenging because they were saying, How do you even find placements? And 
one thing that I learned very quickly, and I'd learned through my work in HR, was networking is critical. And I really recommend to all listeners, whether you're at the start of the study, you know, doing your bachelor's, don't underestimate the importance of networking. And when I say networking, it's things like think through that kind of system. So if you did a little circle and then you said, who am I networking who works in health? Who am I networking that works in policy? Kind of just start doing a bit of a map. And I was really forward. I just started emailing everyone that I could find. Hey, you know, getting on LinkedIn, but emailing people and going, hey, I really love what you're doing. Is there any way we can connect? Hey, I love this. This profession was amazing. Everyone was like, sure, let's have coffee. Let's do this. Let's do this. So before I knew it, I was already engaging with these amazing people who were saying, come back to me when you finish this and I'll help you with this. And I was amazed. So, and then people said to me, how do you know all these people in psychology? And I'm like, I just was messaging. And um, yeah. get on, get on the different, you know, forums, programs, I don't know, groups that are available and go to those pub nights where they do like free CPD. Yeah, totally. Before you know it, like you've developed this kind of psych network and my psych network, this is interesting, is now bigger than my HR network. Wow, that is interesting. I'm so glad that you had such a positive experience and that people were so generous. I was going to say that I think a lot of psychologists, we really do want to give back to people who are entering the profession. Like I know if anybody approached me, I would be like, look, if I've got anything I could help you with, like I certainly, I certainly would. And I think like a lot of other people would. Well, I think you are, Bron, because I think this podcast in itself is, I, I, I don't know how much work goes into it, but I, I know I'm looking at this platform <laughs> that we're on at the moment and I'm like, how does it come together? But yeah. I, I, I think this is a really good example of, at the end of the day, we want to help our clients, but mm. I think we also have a responsibility to help each other. Mm. Um, and ultimately for me, you know, I think in the future, I'd love to be a board approved supervisor. I'd love to lead a team. I'd love to help psychologists. So even now, if people contact me and I can offer them advice on HR, do not ever, now I'm seeing like everyone <laughs> going like, gates, oh, I'm going to email him. <laughs> here's um, my contract Nick here's my contract could you please review it and, and, yeah. <laughs> don't um, do that <laughs> if people, don't do that please um, if people contact me and say hey I just want to talk to you about my thinking on my role design how do I write a position outline when, you know someone's asked me I will always offer that support where I mm. can because I can bring something to this profession I want to help people yeah no, and I, I think that's wonderful. I'm, I'm really for collegiality in our profession and I really want us to look after each other. And I do agree that, that we should be looking after each other. It's, it can be really hard and it can be quite isolating. So I'm really glad that you've created a really solid network. And I'm also really glad that you said that you just like messaged people on LinkedIn because I think like listeners would be thinking, oh, I need to write a very formal letter and be like, dear sirs, but it's, it sounds like it was really just being like, hi, I'm Nick. Like, here's my situation. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even like, once you start really seeing people doing like, be curious, be interested. Like there are some psychologists like, like this, bro. Like, I mean, how did I, yeah. how did we connect? You know, I was like, hey, bro, I'm going to love what form. you're doing. Yeah. yeah. You know, can, can we, you know, be curious, explore. And then yeah. When people are posting information, like some people post research on LinkedIn or other social media platforms, whatever it is, Facebook, there's so many Facebook stuff. Be curious. Can I love what you're doing there? This is really fascinating. I really like this. That mm. is networking. And we should not feel like it's something like you're sucking, you're sucking up. It's actually not. Like these people are working really hard to make a difference, whether they're writing an article, whether they're doing a podcast. Let's embrace it. Let's connect. Let's say, hey, how can I help you? Because that's how we, like you said, look after each other and we're going to make a bigger difference. Totally. Yeah. Like I'm really hoping to niche in sexology. So I've just finished my certificate in sexology and it's a field that I really love. And I've been connecting with a lot of people in the sexology field. Lovely folks. So great. Um, but yeah, it hasn't felt scummy. It's just felt like we share an interest and we really want to help people with like sexual health. So yeah, let's connect. It's and just I, like buddies. I, I know that you, um, I, I did listen to your podcast with Emma St. John. Yeah, um, that's great. I work with. Um, oh, so, fantastic. Uh, yeah, so I completely, I think it's actually a really fascinating area and I'm glad that yep. you're doing the work in there, that, there because I think 
actually we need more CPD and we need to spend more time in the programs learning yeah. about this stuff because you know what? People are having sex. Yes. And they sometimes it becomes an issue for them and they want yeah. to talk about it in therapy. So let's talk about sex. Yeah. I mean, that was my thing. I was just like, we just need more safe spaces in psychology where people can talk about sex. And I just didn't feel like we had enough of them. And I was like, well, I'm going to go in there then. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, know, I know Emma can, you know, has no issue talking about it either. And I, I yeah. reckon you won't either. So I think it's fantastic. No, I don't. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I'm very open. So it's like, <laughs> I've already got like the good attitudes. So I was just like, well, why not? But yeah. Okay. And another thing that I wanted to talk about, just doing another sidestep, is I think like hearing you talk, Nick, about your registration journey, I know you're working full-time at at the same time as studying. And I'm just curious about what sacrifices, if any, you needed to make to become registered. That'd probably be the the biggest challenge that I had. And I think if I was to cut compartmentalize them into thought bubbles as you talk about that and that's sort of how I my mind's going there's a part of our relationship so I'm partnered and my partner Philip and I've been together for um nearly 10 years and I was I was having to work full-time and spend my weekends studying and we all know that those papers and being able to get the high distinctions to get into honors I didn't realize the sacrifice and Mm. I, and, and the stress of every paper you submitted, you know that if your GPA is not what it needs to be, that could be the, you know, a challenge for you getting into the next phase. That's what it felt like at the time. I, I don't yeah. think it's actually that, that bad, but it felt oh, like no. that. No, I know that that's a shared thought. I, I would say you're not alone. And I think that a lot of, from what I've seen on like the Facebook groups, a lot of people are thinking similarly and feeling similarly. And if I don't get into honours, I can't do this. If I don't get into the clinical program, I can't do this. It's not that black and white. And But we feel like that at the time. And yes, that's yeah. the reality for us at yeah. the time. For yeah. me, what that meant was I spent a lot of time studying on weekends. I lived abroad when I was doing my honours. So I was actually living in the Netherlands, uh, working globally and doing my thesis remotely. It oh all sounds, it sounds ridiculous, I know. And <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. But yeah. um, I think what it meant was I was maybe spending too much time working and studying and not enough time living life. And for me, it's a voice that I constantly have and a challenge where I say, okay, like Nick, how much time am I spending on Nick and how much time am I spending on my career? Which is going back to, I feel like I've got more time now to do things for what's important to me. So I think one is around that time. And I've got an amazing partner who was always there by my side saying it's fine you know this is your time this is important to you financially I think I I left my um I was working for ING as the executive director of HR and I left that at the start of the year and I took um I went full-time study finished my clinical program I had to I had no choice and I stopped working and that was tough but wow I was preparing for it but I stopped working and I said I'm going to do this full-time I've got no regrets I'm glad I did it this thing I ever did but there's a financial impact on that, right? You know, totally. um, you don't just wake up and go, oh, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, so I think you do have a challenge around the finances. And then I think the third part would be, I think there were some sacrifices I made around, not sacrifices, I'd say. The last thing was learning to be patient. I don't even know if I've articulated this properly, but I think I thought I could get it all done in six years or four years, whatever it was, five years. It took me eight years and the eight years, it took me a bit longer than what I expected, but I'm, I don't think it was a sacrifice. It was, I had to change my thinking around the path of how to get there, which meant going part-time at some points, doing it a different way. So I think that was more around the length of time it would take. Yeah. No, it's, it really is some significant challenges that you're describing. And I imagine it wasn't an easy journey over the eight years. Yeah, but fun, but I would not do it again. And I'm not yeah. doing my PhD. Okay. Which I know you're done, Rod. And um, yep. yeah, 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 yeah. Kudos to you. I would not go <laughs> that pathway. <laughs> yeah, I only did it because I was a naive 21-year-old and I was like, okay, I guess I'll do a PhD. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you know what? It's funny because my partner's like, are you going to do the PhD? And I'm like, no, no, no. And then I'm like, but it could be interesting. I'm like, not now. I've got an, I've got so much to learn that yeah. 
I'm focused on building my clinical skill. That's what's important to me right now. And working yeah. with my clients. Yeah. But in the future, mm-hmm. I might go down the research pathway. Well, I've, I'll be having an episode coming up in like a month or two, which will be all about PhDs. So stay Fantastic. tuned, listeners and Nick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's really wonderful to hear that what you value now is really building those relationships with your clients, doing the clinical work. And so you're back in HR? Yeah. So I'm doing yeah. the, yeah. So basically I do four days a week in human resources, which is also has an application of clinical sites. So I do mental health programs social hazards. So there's a component of my work in psychology there, but obviously I do not see clients within an organizational setting. And that is purely more general practice around organizational topics. And then I also do private practice and see clients in a private practice setting, which I love. And I don't know what the future will hold. It feels good right now. And what I've learned here, it's fine right now. Like it might change. I don't know. Like, you know, the split, the composition, the balance might change, but I'm having fun at the moment. I'm feeling good and I'm learning to roll with it a bit and learning that there's no, you know, and, and I love being registered now because I don't know if you felt like this, Brom, but you can sort of start deciding on what you want to, like, what CPD am I going to do? Yeah. Where am I going to focus? I love that. Like, yeah. anyone who's like, you know, kind of still studying or doing the provisional pathway and they're like, oh, this is so like, don't, you don't have to do it this way. When you get registered, it changes and it opens up to, I'm going to just focus on this for a while. And I love that. I read what I want. Yes. I, I'm, I'm actually blabbering now because I'm getting kind of excited. Like the geeky <laughs> thing is coming out. No, like, I think yes. it's great. And I completely agree. It's really exciting to be able to focus on like, I guess there's just a sense of freedom that you that you didn't have beforehand. And yes, like, I think it is really exciting being able to pick your CPD and be like, hey, I'm going to like try this out. And what about this? It's really cool. And I love the supervision. I love supervision at the moment because we, you know, I, I mean, you know, we all love a good supervision contract with mm-hmm. very clear goals. And you, as you heard earlier, I love a good goal, but I love being able to talk to my supervisors about, I, I feel like this is an area that I really want to focus in. And I've actually got a primary supervisor and two secondary supervisors. So I actually have like a team of people who support me in my registrar program. And I love that because they're so different and they challenge me in different ways. Yeah, no, that's absolutely wonderful. So Nick, if you could give any last piece of advice to anyone who's going through their psychology career or coming to psychology later in life, what would you say to them? I think the first thing I would say is I heard this and I should have listened to it. It's a marathon, not a race. And I think you have to treat that when you go into psychology, just put it, trunk it. Don't feel like I've got to make all the decisions. It's this way or no way. It's clinical or no way. It's not that it's not like that. Um, the whole part of whatever path you take, whether it's going through a provisional part, then leading into an endorsement or going through the general or going through, there's so many different things you can do. Go through a PhD pathway, just take it step by step. And it's a marathon and take care of yourself through that marathon. Think of it when you're running in a marathon, you don't sprint. You've got to go a bit slow. You've got to stop and have a drink along the way. And you've got to preserve some of that energy for the final sprint. Um, And think about what it feels like at the end of the marathon. You see them drop into the ground. That's how I felt when I finished. Um, <laughs> and people said that to me. I was like, I need a break right now and I need to recharge. So the first piece of advice I would say is think uh, that it, it is a bit like that. And the second thing I would say is if, if you are feeling like, you know, sometimes you have a dream or there's something that you think you want to try and people are saying, no, you can't do it like that. Speak to different people. The beauty of our profession is that Everyone will give you a different perspective and different opinions. And I think it's important to listen to all those and then come up with your own mind what's important to you. And do something around psychology. Like what I've learned is I love a good act on myself. Yeah. Um, I love a good cognitive diffusion. Like I'm always, you know, like doing the thought stuff, doing choice points, doing values. Yeah. We're privileged to be able to know these interventions. So don't be afraid to do them on yourself. 
Mm. And the last thing I would say is, I think it's really important we also stand up for our own, what's right for us. You know, we're an ethically driven profession. So I think we should also be very clear on what we expect in terms of terms and conditions of employment, what we're paid, being paid fairly for what we do with good contracts. So if you feel that something is not right, don't be afraid to speak up. Speak to someone, not necessarily in that employment negotiation, but speak to someone because there are some great people around who will give you advice and maybe it's not the right contract for you. All excellent things. I'm so glad that you're able to come on and share these wonderful insights with us, Nick. And congratulations again on your gaining your registration and getting into the clinical registrar program. It's a really big achievement. Thanks, Brian. And I'll, um, yeah, definitely um, uh, going to focus more on the self-care and balance at the moment because that's, um, yeah, you know, practice what you preach is what I say. Oh, totally. No. And yeah, it sounds like well-deserved, well-earned. Yeah. Focus on self-care. So thank you so much again, Nick, for coming on and sharing your story with us. It was really unique and um, very interesting as well. And thanks for sharing your insights. Thank you very much. Well, listeners, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast as well. Catch you next time and have a good one. Bye.